Amen. Amen. So we're in one of these more difficult sections of the New Testament today. So a question, what does it mean to be shrewd? This is audience participation time. When I say the word shrewd, what's the first thing that comes to your mind? Shrewd. Yeah, go ahead. Rude. Because it rhymes? <laughs> a little, maybe. What else? Shrewd. What do you think of? Come on, now that was a young man speaking up, so the rest of y'all surely can. Cunning. Who? Cunning. Cunning. Okay. Sharp. Anybody else? Not trustworthy. Not trustworthy. Okay. So when we think of, we don't think of it, even when we think of people who are shrewd, right? You probably had a person come to mind. Uh, you don't think of them in, in biblical terms, probably not, right? Probably That's not a really a churchy kind of word when we think of being shrewd. We don't think of that as being a churchy kind of person. Right? In the previous chapter, in chapter 15, right? Yeah, 15, of uh, the Gospel of Luke, Jesus told us the story of the prodigal son, right? You may have heard that story, the prodigal. It was actually a story about the older brother, is what we found out. The story was, the point of the story was the older brother in the story. Because Jesus was talking to the Pharisees, who were hard-hearted, just like the older brother in the story was, because people had sought out forgiveness. His younger brother had sought forgiveness, and he was hard-hearted, just as the Pharisees were when Jesus was talking to the tax collectors and sinners. Jesus was calling them out. Usually, now I can't speak for you, but I probably can, that we don't like to be called out for our mistakes, right? You and I, we, don't, we really don't like it. Uh, it can, whether it comes in a sermon or a Bible story or a devotion or, or just seeing your faults in others, it makes us uncomfortable because we think, well, if I see that, then other people can probably see that in me. And, uh, right? We don't like that. We don't like being out there like that. Um, that's one of the problems with parables that Jesus tells. Because usually, Jesus' parables, he lifts up this crazy standard, and we feel responsible to live up to it. And, and I'm just guessing that most of us here have not really, really gotten to the point of perfection that we're comfortable with high expectations, right? Most high expectations usually make us a little uncomfortable because, yeah, I'll never be that. I'll never be able to do that. We, we tell ourselves those sorts of things. So high expectations make us uncomfortable, that high standard, because we struggle with it. Then there are parables like the one in Luke chapter 16 that we're going to look at today, where the parable actually lifts up the bad guy, or a bad guy, not, not to be like him, but to learn from him. To learn from the way he lives. Making someone who we wouldn't look up to become the role model. That's what Jesus does here in Luke chapter 16. I'm just going to read this parable to you, and then we'll talk about how Jesus breaks it down here. Jesus told his disciples. He's talking to his disciples now after talking to the Pharisees. He says, there was a rich man whose manager was a... Was a his manager was accused of wasting his possessions. So he called him in and said, What is this I hear about you? Give an account of your management, because you cannot be manager anymore. The manager said to himself, What shall I do now? I mean, I'm getting fired. My master's taking away my job. 
I'm not strong enough to dig. I'm too proud to beg. What am I going to do? I know what I'll do. So that when I lose my job here, people will welcome me into their homes. He says, so I called in each one of the master's debtors. He asked the first one, how much do you owe my master? 900 gallons of olive oil. That's a lot of olive oil. Take your bill quickly and make it 450 gallons. Give him a 50% discount right off the bat. Pretty generous, wouldn't you say? Then he asked the second, how much do you owe? A thousand bushels of wheat. Take your bill and make it 800. 20% discount. The master then commended the dishonest manager. What? That makes sense. Because he acted shrewdly. For the people of this world are more shrewd in dealing with their own kind than are the people of the light. Okay, so this is a very strange role model that Jesus has put before us here. If you read, if you do any reading or studying, if you read this before we got here today, you probably said, i got to find something else about that. And maybe you did a little digging and if you read commentaries about this sort of thing, there's, there's a lot uh, out there about this parable, and they will take you in all kinds of different directions. It's hard to imagine that Jesus would lift up someone who obviously is a thief, someone who's obviously being dishonest. It's hard to imagine that Jesus would lift that person up. I agree. The problem is that's what Jesus seems to do here in the story. So I apply... When I'm trying to make sense of scriptures, stories like this, I apply what they call Occam's razor. It's just the most obvious thing. Don't, don't try to figure out too much. Just take the most obvious connection that Jesus is trying to make, and that must be what Jesus is trying to do here. Regardless, whether it was the manager who had taken the money out of his own pocket to buy his influence, or if he took the his master's money, and gave it away to buy future influence. That's what the principle of the story is, I believe, is that the manager was taking the opportunity to buy influence for tomorrow. Either way, he was going to get credit for it, whether he did it out of his own funds or he did it out of his master's kitty where the master would never know. Verse 19, or verse 9 tells us, Jesus' point to the whole parable, he says, I tell you, use worldly wealth to gain friends for yourselves so that when it is gone, you'll be welcomed into eternal dwellings. The word wealth is mammon. In the Old Testament word, that word mammon referred to everything you own. All your possessions. Use all your possessions to gain friends for yourselves so that when they are gone, and they will be gone, you'll be welcomed into eternal dwellings. So, real quickly from this, in the, the next few verses, Jesus breaks down this parable, kind of it makes it clear what he's teaching in here. And, and three principles that I, jumped, that I saw jumped right off the page. First one is to use worldly wealth to in, invest in people, not in possessions. Use what we have here on earth to invest in people. Shrewd managers make investments for the future. Those of you who run a business, you know, you invest for the future, right? Shrewd disciples make investments in the kingdom in order to prepare for their future life in heaven. The same way. 
investing for the future. Use your money, use your possessions in ways that pursue God's interests as we live as managers of His kingdom here on earth. You see, everything God has given us is to be used to further the kingdom for His purposes. So, so use the resources that He's given to further His work. If you build your life and resources for this life, it will fail you. Your money doesn't love you back. It doesn't. It'll leave you in a heartbeat. <laughs> if those of you have been watching the stock market lately, you know, it, it, has no, it has no affection for you at all. It's not if, it's when. It's when the things that you love, the physical things of this world that are going to break down are not going to work. Mammon. This idea of mammon that scripture refers to. If we live for this life, then one day we're going to have a rude awakening. Especially when we stand before God. I'm not saying that if you're not generous, you're not going to heaven. Because our salvation is found in Jesus. Not in how generous we are. Not only that, but, but think about how you invest in, in the kingdom things versus temporary pursuits. Think about that for a moment. How do you invest in the kingdom things versus world, the things of this world? This is a, a great barometer. It's not going to tell you if you're going to heaven or hell, but it, it will give you a barometer of your spiritual life. It'll tell you if your spiritual life is robust or anemic. It'll tell you if your spiritual life exists even at all. Jesus is going to show us this very thing in a few moments in, the, in a parable that he ends this section with. But, but first, a couple other things I want to point out in this passage. Verse 10, he says, Whoever can be trusted with very little can also be trusted with much. Whoever is dishonest with very little will also be dishonest with much. So if you've been trustworthy in handling worldly wealth, who will trust you with true riches? And if you've not been trustworthy with someone else's property, who would give you property of their own? He's comparing the way we live on, lot, on earth to what is going to be in heaven. And this is that faithfulness is vital in the things of God. Faithfulness is vital in the, in the economy of God, if you want to think of it like that. It's not dependent on how much you have, the size of your income, the the size of your house, the, the, the nest egg that you've got, it doesn't depend on any of that. What it depends on is what you do with what you have, regardless of how much you have or how little you have. Because it reveals the condition of our heart. If you're not faithful with little, then you'll probably not be faithful with much either. I mean, we've seen this happen, right? We, we see this in people all the time. I mean, we know how this principle works, right? If a person you know, if you're with them and they begin to talk about others, how long do you think it's going to be before they start talking to so-and-so about you? Not long, right? You're with someone and they tell you a secret about somebody else. How long do you think it's going to be before they start telling your secrets to somebody else? If your neighbor never returns the shovel, how long do you think it's going to be before he returns the mower and the car and 
else, right? It's just, it's a prelude to the things to come. It's a sign of the condition of their heart. When it comes to our resources, how we use them now demonstrates the sort of character that God wants to reward in heaven with greater riches. And if you can't be trusted in this life, then how can you be trusted in the next with more? The Bible teaches us that in heaven, there will be a time of judgment, right? And I said a moment ago that this isn't about salvation, right? But in heaven, there will be a time when our deeds on earth will be judged and will be rewarded by our deeds on earth. So no, you're not going to get kicked out of heaven because you weren't generous, because you didn't tithe at church. That's not going to get you kicked out of, church, out of heaven. But it does reveal our heart here on earth. We will be rewarded in heaven with how faithful we are in this life. And part of that is to, has to do with how we act with what we have been given. None of this is ours. The clothes you put on today, they're not yours. All of this belongs to God. And it's up to us to use it as he sees fit. As he sees fit. Which, as an aside, everything that's going on in our denomination causes us to question a lot of this, right? We want to hang on to what's ours. We need to always keep in mind that it's none of it's ours. It's all his. It's all for his kingdom. The best we can do is steward it for his glory. The best we can do. Before I get on the soapbox, I'm going to keep going. Verse 13. No one can serve two masters. We love the one, we hate the one and love the other, or we'll be devoted to one and despise the other. You can't serve both God and money. I'm getting back on the soapbox. So, so where this comes for me is that with everything that's going on in our denomination, I found it hard sometimes to worship, to come, with you, to come and sit with you and worship, because I'm distracted, my heart's distracted. And what I've come to realize by reading this text and others is that that reveals a problem in my heart. Because I want all the answers about what's going to happen to my church and my job and, and all this stuff. And I'm not coming at it to glorify God. I'm worried about all these other things. So if you find yourself worried about all these other things, I'd encourage you to check your heart. Because you're probably not doing it, whatever it is, you're probably not doing it for his glory. You're doing it for another reason. speaking from my, my own heart, that's where I've been. And I don't need to be there. None of us need to be there. The Pharisees, who loved money, heard all this, and they were laughing at Jesus. Now, this has been a pretty difficult text so far, right? Can I, amen? I mean, it's been so hard so far. You're like, I, I thought I was going to get to laugh. I thought I was going to, like, he was going to say something funny. He ain't saying nothing funny. He's like stepping on my, he's like walking on my toes, and he wore boots today. This is no fun at all. Yeah, it, but they're laughing. The, the Pharisees are laughing at this. Jesus said to them, You are the ones who justify yourselves in the eyes of others, but God knows your hearts. What people value highly is detestable in God's sight. The law and the prophets were proclaimed until John. Since that time, the good news of the kingdom of God is being preached, and everyone is forcing their way into it. It's easier for heaven and earth to disappear. What? That's impossible. 
It's easier for heaven and earth to disappear than for the least stroke of a pen to drop out of the law. Verse 18, anyone who divorces his wife and marries another woman commits adultery. And the man who marries a divorced woman commits adultery. What? Like, we're on a roll there. and Like, this gets... Okay, so we're going to come back to that verse. But what I want us to see first is that this is a, this is a story about money. Okay? And the principle here is that our mindset must switch from ownership to management. From ownership to management. Here's the issue. If we see ourselves as managers of God's resources and we're faithful in using them for God's purpose, then we're serving God. If we're not, we're serving our possessions, money. Jesus is speaking to his disciples, but verse 14 tells us that they were laughing. The Pharisees were laughing. They were ridiculing him, and he referred to them as lovers of money. The Pharisees were very religious people. You know, in other parts of Scripture where it says they, they tithed their spices, They tithed everything. They wanted to be able to check off that they had done every little thing correctly. And they would find a way to, if they didn't have a checkbox beside it, they would come up with a check. They'd find a way to fit a checkbox in there so they could check it off because they were that religious. Yet they loved money and not God because they wanted to count it. They wanted to be able to count it to make sure it was there to and, and I've had friends who are Orthodox Jews to this day who would say, they will come to your house and tell you what you have to give based on your income. Like they still practice this, this same process that, that it's about the, the legality of it. Very religious people. Moralists. Yet loving money more than God. What that tells us is that one thing that keeps us from being good managers is our love of money, too. How do you serve God or money? Well, you, you think of serving God or money, you don't really do anything for it. It's about what it's, you're waiting for it to do something for you. You work for it to provide you something. Which are you waiting to provide for you? We serve God by trusting him to provide for us. We serve money by trusting it to provide for us. You serve God by being generous with your time, by giving your time, your talents, your treasures, trusting that He will provide for you, protect you, meet your needs. You serve money by looking to it, using it to meet your needs, to protect you, to provide you safety and security. If this is you, then you're veering down the wrong road. If you're tempted to turn down the road of relying on what you've got to provide your happiness, then it's a heart check for us today. That may seem harsh, but the text says that if you love money, you will end up hating God. And I don't want that for you. I do not want that for you. Our possessions, whether money, time, talents, skills, are meant to be are, are, to, are designed to be a source of blessing. To be used to bless ourselves, our, our loved ones, our church, our community, the world. We were blessed to be a blessing. Those things that God has given us are ours to manage, to develop them, to care for them, to steward them. But 
the way we use them shows the world and God how we love, who we love. And in that way, and in that way we get generosity becomes selfishness in a strange sort of way. We get to be selfish with our possessions. Let me explain it this way. Heard a story about a uh, grandfather and his grandson. You know, they were best friends, and you know, granddad is always taking his grandson around, and he's always the grandson would always ask his granddad, "Well, like, why aren't why don't you give that to them?" And the grandfather would say, "Oh, because I'm selfish." And he was always doing generous things, and and he, the grandson would always ask him, "Granddad, why why don't you give that to him?" And he would say, because I'm selfish. And, you know, as a little kid, that didn't make any sense. But as he grew older, he was like, this makes no sense whatsoever. That's always his answer. And finally, he got the, you know, he, the wisdom or the courage. He wanted to know, like, this, is, this doesn't make sense to me at all. Like, Granddad, you've got to explain this to me. And so Granddad said, I'm not generous. In my heart, I've been a very selfish person my whole life. Because of all that Jesus has given me, though, I've decided I'm going to be selfish with my generosity. What do you mean, the boy said. He said, being the most selfish person in the world, I'm so selfish, I want to see smiles on every person's face while I'm living. While I'm living. Because I can't enjoy it when I'm dead. So I'm going to give and continue to give at every opportunity. Think about that for a minute. To be generous because it brings joy. In this past week's readings, if you've been reading along in that YouVersion uh, reading plan, uh, John, John Ortberg, I believe it was yesterday, I'm not sure, um, he had a reading titled, You've got to give it away to keep it. You've got to give it away in order to keep it. And he was talking about the idea of giving away joys and blessings of God. We have to give them away in order, we have to give joy, we have to share joy in order for it to remain joy, right? We have to give away blessings in order for them to be, continue to be a blessing, otherwise they become a responsibility. They become a burden if they're not a blessing. They have to be shared with others. Actually, when we understand that it's a gift from God, we actually want to share it with others, right? That's what, something God does in our hearts. When they become possessions, they become things we have to defend and protect. But in sharing them, their value actually increases. They become worth more. Because not only do I have it, but I can share it with others. Not only did I get the, get the, the fun of accomplishing it or earning it or, or buying it, because that's, the that's the only time you get the rush, right, is when you buy it. But I actually got more joy by sharing it with others, by giving it away. It's a great way to live, that generosity makes things worth more. How about that for a principle to live by? Generosity, allowing it to make it worth more in our lives. It's a great way to live, but it's only possible if we're able to see the things that we have in the right in a kingdom perspective. So let me ask you the question that this text has been driving through all day today. Oh, there was this quote up there, but anyway. Here's the question. Do you own your money or does it own you? Your stuff. 
if you struggle in this area, and a lot of people do, don't feel, don't feel like you're the only one. There are a lot of great resources available to help. If you maybe need some help in, in getting an idea of God's perspective on wealth and finances and our work and everything else, there's a lot available. Ask me. I'll be glad to help you. Point you in the direction. But this is important. This is important. Not just because you know, it came up in the Bible, but, but there's more in the New Testament about money and that how disciples are to handle it than any other subject in the New Testament. You realize that? There are more verses committed to money and the management of it by disciples than anything else in the New Testament. This is important because it's a door into our heart. How we live this life with our mammon, our stuff. It's important. If you have questions, please let me know. But I want to go back for a minute. Verse 18, because some of you read that and you're like, what is it? What is that? Anyone who divorces his wife and marries another woman commits adultery. The man who marries a divorced woman commits adultery. What is that? Why is this even here? Like, that's such a random thing just to kind of, it seems random, right? Just to kind of throw in there. First, I want to say that this is not the, the, the sum total of the New Testament teaching on marriage and divorce. There's a lot more in the Bible about marriage and divorce than this one verse. I, I would say don't be informed solely by this one verse. You can find it in Matthew 5, Matthew 19, Mark chapter 10, Romans chapter 7, 1 Corinthians 7. There's, there's more passages that, that, are, that teach us about the significance of marriage and divorce. But, but to put it in context here, remember that the Pharisees were just laughing at Jesus. Jesus is pointing out that they are fanatics of the letter of the law. But they're missing the big picture. He's calling them out for their practice of allowing divorce. Like, like anytime you, you, you want to marry somebody else, sure. Okay, here, just write it down, right? Give it, we'll just make up a reason. She didn't cook right. Okay. Deuteronomy chapter 24. Nope, I thought I had it, but I don't. Deuteronomy chapter 24, verse 1 says this. This is the law that they were following. If a man marries a woman who becomes displeasing to him because he finds something indecent about her and he writes her a certificate of divorce, he can send her away. The letter of the law. Now, granted, it was a patriarchal time and men kind of ruled the thing, it, we, uh, all of that. But the point was, was that the Pharisees, what Jesus was calling them out for is that the scripture is clear that when man and woman are married, they become one flesh, Right? They become one. We shouldn't be so quick to just allow things to separate, to pretend like you can separate it. If some, and I'm sure some of us in this room have been married before, have been married and divorced maybe, then you know that there's something about that other relationship that it, it, it's undeniable. It's, it, there's something happens in marriage that we can't get around. We have to deal with. And we can't just throw it away so quickly. Does he, is he, is this a blanket statement? No, absolutely not. That's not Jesus' point here. The whole story is about money. Jesus is saying not so fast. There are some things that can't be undone so quick. Relationships, like our possessions, are to be held in, in a high regard. And that's what he shows in this closing parable in verse 19 to 31. 
There was a rich man who was dressed in purple and fine linen and lived in luxury every day. At his gate was, a, was laid a beggar named Lazarus, covered with sores and longing to eat what fell from the rich man's table. Even the dogs came and licked his sores. The time came when the beggar died and, was, and the angels carried him to Abraham's side. The rich man also died and was buried. In Hades, he went to hell, where he was in torment, he looked up and saw Abraham far away with Lazarus by his side. So he called to him, Father Abraham, have pity on me and send Lazarus to dip his finger in water and cool my tongue because I am in agony in this fire. But Abraham replied, Son, remember that in your lifetime you received your good things while Lazarus received bad things. But now he is comforted here and you are in agony. And besides all of this, between us and you, a great chasm has been set in place, so that those who want to go from here to you cannot, and nor can anyone cross over from there to us. He answered, Then I beg you, Father, send Lazarus to my family. For I have five brothers. Let him warn them, so that they will not also come to this place of torment. Abraham replied, They have Moses and the prophets. Let them listen to them. No, Father Abraham, he said, but if, if someone go, from the dead goes to them, they'll repent. He said to him, if they, didn't listen, if they don't listen to Moses and the prophets, they will not be convinced even if someone rises from the dead. Now there is a lot in this passage, right? There's a lot in here. There's a lot in here about heaven and hell. There's a lot in here about the afterlife. There's a, there's a ton in here, but it's about money. So I want to focus on the the, the communication that Jesus is using to teach us about money. Now, if you want to get into the other stuff, I encourage you to do that, but that would take us a whole other series of messages, and we're going to stay focused here today. I'm doing my best to stay focused. This parable, in context, is all about stewardship versus entitlement. Stewardship versus entitlement. I've heard it said, and you probably have too, that we're living in an entitled generation. You ever heard that? That this is an entitled generation. I mean, the poor are entitled to welfare. The rich are entitled to tax breaks. The employed are entitled to benefits. Students are entitled to loan forgiveness. Whatever your, your special interest, you are entitled to be heard. You're entitled to your point of view. The reality was, because Jesus is speaking to it, this isn't new to our generation. This has been a condition of the heart since the very beginning. Matter of fact, you might even say it was in the original sin that God had given Adam and Eve all the trees of the garden to eat from except that one, and yet they felt entitled to have that one too. What do we really deserve? That's the question. What do you really deserve? What do you feel like? What is, in your heart, what is it? What do you deserve? Scripture teaches that we don't deserve anything. But God gives us, out of his goodness, out of his blessing, out of his love, he blesses his children. He gives because it's his character to give. Not because we deserve it, but because it's the giver, not the receiver. If that's the way you approach your life, and I know that many of you sitting in this sanctuary today 
so don't miss don't mishear what I'm saying here because I know that many of you give and are generous sacrificially and you approach your life as though it is a gift from God and I don't question that at all but when we think about it like that as it's a gift we're much we're much more comfortable being in the role of a steward a manager but that's not how we find the rich man we find the rich man being entitled he's been condemned but know this he's not condemned for being rich right that's not his the source of his condemnation I mean the Bible's full of stories of people who were rich and faithful right that's the whole point is that if you were rich then God had blessed you because of your faithfulness that was the the holding in the Old Testament right but here we have one who's rich and yet is suffering in hell Why? It's not because of an abundance of his stuff. But, but the reality is that the abundance of stuff brings with it a whole different set of problems than not having it bring. But even the poor can struggle with entitlement, like the rich man did. But in our story, this rich man, while he couldn't bring his wealth with him, what he did bring with him was his indifference, or what died with him was his indifference to others. That's why he was there, was his indifference to other people who were in need, who were suffering. During his life on earth, he ignored the man who had been brought and put at his gate, suffering, right in front of him. Right, in, right before his eyes, there was somebody in need, and he walked by him all the time. Now, I don't want to be too hard on him here, and I caution us from being too hard on him, too. Because it's easy to fall into this. The people right around us being in need, and we ignore it. It's easy to have compassion on people, on kids in, in third world countries that we'll send money to. We'll, we'll do the shoeboxes for. I'm not, I'm not faulting on the shoeboxes, right? I'm just saying this, it's, those things are easy. Relatively. I mean, some people put in a lot of work. But they're, they're easy in the sense that it's easy to give to people halfway around the world hard to do it right here it's hard to do it right here in our community why because well we, we think that the people we know who are in need we give them something we feel like they're taking advantage of us you ever you ever had that thought like they've got a cable tv they got a cell phone why do they need a hundred dollars for groceries we don't think that about people halfway around the world but i got news to tell you now when you go to a third world country and you hop out of the vehicle because they see you're an american they're all coming running to the door they all want something because they know Americans bring stuff. Right, Jamie? Doesn't matter where you go. It's the same everywhere. It's a condition of the heart. It's a condition of the heart. The question is more about why, do we, why is it so much harder for us to be generous right here? I think it's because when we think about being generous here, we have strings attached to our generosity. We want them to respond in a certain way, and then I'll be generous. We want them to act a certain way, and then we'll be generous. Mr. Dickey Porter and I, who oversees our crisis ministry here in Rock Hall, where we, we help people with electric bills and gas bills and diapers and, and baby formula and all that kind of stuff, people in need, we, we give. You give. You're generous. You, know, you have been for years. 
I'll say this, if you were more generous in the past than you are today, but, but you've always been generous. There's never been a need for people uh, that we couldn't fill, right? Recently, we, we, or probably a year ago, we bought a stack of grocery cards for the grocery store, and we were going to give them to people. But then the grocery store changed hands, and new grocery store, we had to get them replaced, right? Because I don't know why the banks had to, had to get new cards made. So uh, he and I were talking about it the other day, and then the grocery store now, they sell liquor in there. And I was like, you know, I don't think, I'm not going to support somebody to do that, Mr. Dickey. And he said, well, I don't either. We can, tell, we can ask them not to, you know, not to let them buy alcohol with it, but he said, ultimately, it's up to them. Just like it's up to me and you, he said, what we do with God's blessings. God says, here, you decide. I said, yeah, you're right. This is true. I can squander it. I can spend it just on me. I can actually buy the thing that I really need, or I can blow it on whatever, or I can get drunk. I can, it's up to me. God says, here it is. Here it is, because I love you. He said, that's the way we need to approach that. And I said, you know, right, you're right. That is how we need to approach that. Like, I can't micromanage generosity. Then it's not generosity. Then it becomes, like, I've got to check boxes. I become like a Pharisee, right? Did you do this right? Did you do that right? Did you do, okay, I can give it to you. No. No, if I'm being generous, I give. I, I be generous. And I pray. You see, the curse of the rich man was his arrogance. The curse of the rich man was his arrogance. That he, that he all through life, he didn't, he, he couldn't help that guy. All through life. And now in death, <laughs> what happened? He brought his arrogance with him because he said, hey, tell Lazarus to come here and give me a hand. Bring me some water, Lazarus. He still wanted to be served. Lazarus, Lazarus just accepts what God gives him. Even in life. He just accepted it as his place. You know what would have been very tempting if I were Lazarus when I got to heaven and I saw him down in hell? Would have been to gloat. <laughs> you know, like, ah, look where I am, right? Look at me now, right? It's been very tempting. That would have been a little, that probably would have prevented me from ever getting in there, right? But that's, that's part of our heart. But Lazarus didn't do that. He, didn't, he wasn't proud in any sense. He just accepted what God had given him. And in that way, he has a lot to teach us. Paul wrote in 1 Corinthians, Brothers and sisters, think of what you were when you were called. Not many of you were wise by human standards. Not many were influential. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. God chose the weak things of the world to shame the strong. God chose the lowly things of this world, the despised things, the things that are not to nullify the things that are so that nobody may boast before him. See, the goal for us, Jesus teaching us, using a simple poor beggar, Jesus using a, a, a shrewd steward, using the things that we wouldn't really think of as the things to pursue, is, is Jesus is using it to teach us to live this life without regrets. Live this life regret-free. Because there's a day coming when it won't matter how much you have on this world, how much you had in this world. So live without the 
If only. That's what the, the rich man, that's what he is. If only I knew, right? Somebody go back and tell my brothers. If only they knew, they'll change. Jesus says, no, that's not, that's not really going to happen. Because it's a matter of your heart. It's a matter of the heart. And we need to see that in ourselves. The uncomfortable things. So that we can begin to pray that God, change my heart. That's what David wrote in that psalm, right? Change my heart, O oh God. Make it ever true. This is a strange paradox that Jesus puts forth in, in Luke chapter 16. There's a lot of things he shows us that are, there's a truth behind it that we really didn't want to face. One of the odd things is, is that unselfishness is the truest form of selfishness when you think about it that way. Think about the saints that we honor in the church. Historically, and even those presently, right? Those who are able to share their resources without a sense of sacrifice. People who are willing to do without so that others can have. Without question. Think of those folks. St. Francis. He left millions to go and, and wander around as a monk. Left millions. St. Francis, does anybody feel sorry for him? No. No, because it was, <laughs> I mean, all the things that he's written have affected the church ever since. Mother Teresa is another one. I mean, she could have lived in a, in a nice little apartment in Yugoslavia playing checkers with her neighbors and her grandkids for the rest of her long, happy life. Does anybody feel sorry for Mother Teresa for being stuck in Calcutta? No. No, because she did something of more value, right? There was a great missionary in Africa named uh, David Livingstone. I don't know if you've ever heard him or not, but, but he went to thousands of villages in Africa sharing the gospel. And, and he walked the whole way. Decades later, there was another missionary that followed him, went to one of the villages that he had visited that they thought was so remote that no one's been here before. They get there, and he starts loving them and serving them, telling them about Jesus. And an old lady in the back of the room gets up and leaves. And she comes back, and she says, I know the man who you're talking about. He's talking about Jesus. I said, you do? And she brought up a picture of David Livingstone. I said, yeah, he was here years before. She had thought he was Jesus. She had thought Jesus was in their village. Would folks in Rock Hall say that about you? Would you say that about us as a church? What would we have to change about our lives, about our church, so that those in deepest need in our community would know that, hey, that's, those are Jesus people. Right? What do we have to do different? Who's going to say that about us? See, what Livingstone knew and what, what some of you know is that there's an investment to be made where malls nor rust destroy. And I want to celebrate you, right? Everything in me wants to point you out because I know who some of you are, but I know that that's not why you do it. But I want you to know today that uh, what you do matters. And it is noticed. 
not just by me, your pastor, but by people in this community who know, who see it, who, who know how you live your life, and it, and it does matter. It's encouraging. For the, and, and it's a challenge to the rest of us because we see it too. We see it in you. And I praise God that you're a part of us and you're doing it here. I want to pray a blessing for you and uh, asking God to help the rest of us. Join me. Lord, we thank you for how you change our lives when we come to faith. Lord, we thank you for how when, when we surrender our life to you that you really do begin to take over. That as we follow you for, for, for days and weeks and years and decades, Lord, that we look back on our life and we think, wow, I never would have dreamed that all of that would have happened. But it happens, one faithful step after another. So Lord, I thank you for the faithfulness that's in this room right now. And for those who weren't here today, God, I thank you for the faithfulness that has been, that has been modeled, that's been put on display. People who have given financially, God, people who have served tirelessly, people who pray at all hours of the night, Lord, I thank you. I thank you for how they affect me and how they're such an encouragement to your church. God, for those of us who are still on the way, keep us, keep, keep those uh, heroes of the faith in front of us so that we know what to strive for. We know what to trust that you are doing in us. Teach us, Lord, that everything we do in this life does have a significant value in the life to come. Use us, Lord. We love you. Amen. 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 Thank you for being here today. Uh, I would encourage you, uh, one thing that we're going to, uh, uh, over the next month, we're going to be uh, doing a reading plan on money. So if you haven't been a part of it, uh, that version Bible reading app, join us on there. Uh, we're talking about all the aspects of how to, how to manage our money as a disciple. So uh, join us as a part of that. Uh, it should be great. It's going to be a whole month long. So jump in. Even if you get behind, you get whatever, just jump in. All right? Amen. Terry? Oh, one other thing while Terry's coming up. Next week, we would be having a combined worship service. Uh, we're not going to do it next week. We're going to do it in, on the 13th. Uh, so not this Sunday, not next Sunday, but on the 13th, we're going to have a combined worship service. So we'll be here next Sunday like normal. All right? Please stand for the...